Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. Registration for the Numinous School opens on June 1st. It only happens once a year and spaces are limited. Sign up for the waitlist on my website, carmenspaniola.com. I am so delighted today to share with you this vibrant, passionate, and also at times very tender conversation that I had with Danielle Proham Olson of Gather. Danielle is a wild crafter and herbalist, and Gather is her creative collaboration with Jennifer Aikman, her sister-in-law, where they teach, write, and host events dedicated to ancestral foods, magical cookery, and seasonal celebrations. Thousands of people around the world follow and appreciate their work through their website and newsletter at gathervictoria.com, as well as their Patreon and Facebook accounts. But what really comes through for me with their work is that Gather is clearly about more than just events and recipes and articles. I connected with Danielle so she could illuminate for me the deeper roots of her work with Gather. So Danielle, what identities do you lead with? Well, Carmen, hello. Um, I... I lead with the obvious identities of being, well, at least for me, obvious, um, being a wild crafter, um, an eco-feminist, a herbalist, um, a writer. Um, So those sort of obvious identities that I, I like to identify with, but really in thinking about it, I think what really underlies everything I do is the fact that I see myself as a spiritual activist. And um, because everything that I do all has the sort of the same underpinning, which is um, really working towards um, raising what I call biophilia, love of the earth, love of the planet. And sort of, so I'm sort of an activist in, in the sense of protecting, protecting my beloved mother earth. <laughs> mm, that's beautiful. Now, have you always had that kind of, uh, will or urge towards spiritual activism? Like when, when do you first remember your love of the earth becoming something so important to you that you would want to devote so much time and energy to it? Well, actually it's always, I've always been sort of a bit of an activist at heart. And as I was mentioning earlier, I also have been a documentary filmmaker in the past. And my motivation always, as long as I can remember, even being a teenager was that when I grew up, I wanted to do something to help save the planet. And, um, and so everything, I mean, one of the first, I think when I was 17 or 18, I envisioned starting like a public communications agency called Anima Mundi, Mm -hmm. (laughs) all of the world. And um, so that was always something um, that was really important to me. And I think it really came from being a child that was overly sensitive, overly sensitive in context of our culture today, but overly sensitive to nature and to especially the suffering animals. I was um, the kind of child I could not watch Disney movies because any, (laughs) 
any animal, you know, they love those animals that are lost in the forest or, you know, these kind of tales and, or Bambi, for example, that was the first movie I was taken to. And I cried and cried for days because yeah. poor Bambi and his mommy and all this sort of stuff. And so, um, yeah, so I was always really angry about pollution and about poor animals and how people treated them so horribly. And so I think that sort of always sort of was part of, of who I was. And, and if I go back even further, I said I'm a, April is, uh, April is my birthday month and it's a planet of Venus, the planet of all things green and growing. And so I think that I just was born that way. <laughs> Did, planet of, yeah, the earth, so. Did you grow up in an urban or more rural environment as a small child? Definitely, definitely um, urban. Well, not urban intensive city, um, but I grew up in most part in Victoria. My uh, mom came from Edmonton when we were, we were just tiny, my brother and I. And then we, we grew up here in Victoria. But Victoria, of course, then was very um, different than it was today. I mean, I, today we would call Victoria City at that time. It was still so rural. And a lot of the places now that are completely paved over um, paved over, you know, hugely developed areas. I remember as forests and fields that I spent hours in as a child. Mm. So, um, sort of a halfway between, right? Not really rural, but not really urban. <laughs> and as you say that, I mean, oh, my body, it, it gives me chills, like sad chills that, that, that must be really heartbreaking to look at, at the, the, place that has nurtured you mm -hmm. and have development be overtaking those um, spaces. Does that inform some of your work today then? Absolutely, absolutely, because um, this is one of the reasons uh, Gather was formed was, um, I think as I, we were sort of talking off, off earlier, mm -hmm. off, I was gonna say off camera, but <laughs> off audio, um, is is just having it was just after years of of working in various forms and activism um you know i really came to the realization in my 30s and early 40s that you know it wasn't working <laughs> you know the environmental movement wasn't going anywhere and and on the island here the old growth forests were falling at a faster rate uh, use of pesticides and herbicides in our parks and our wild areas was increasing. All of these things were, you know, getting much, much worse. Favorite patches where we had gone to forage um, mushrooms, shaggy manes when we were children were now, you know, as I said, parking lots. And so I, I was grief stricken and also full of rage, just so angry at, at our culture that, that disregards the importance of these things. And, um, and so really spending a lot of time taking a good think about really what could be the most effective and powerful thing that I could do. And, and there's an, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the deep ecology movement, Mm -hmm. But there was a woman by the name of Dorothy Chappelle who wrote an article. Um, I can't remember the name of it now, but suggesting that the most important 
you know, before we can achieve any kind of environmental sustainability, we each have to reform our own personal relationship with the earth and our own I'm also a very emotional person, so I can feel my tears creeping up here. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate them because I'm, I'm so totally with you. Yeah. Um, so she's, she talked about forming this personal relationship again with the earth. And, um, and it's very obvious that, you know, today we live in, you know, we live in urban environments. We live indoors all the time. Our food comes, you know, our food comes from, you know, factory farms, um, that we, we lack that personal everyday connection with the earth. You know, we get in our cars, we go to work, we come back, you know, we, we're disconnected. And I think that's the reason I don't, that, that we have lost this empathy because for, for the planet and for nature. And, and so she recommended this Dorothy Chappelle that we return very much to the old nature religions and the old holidays and these things that used to give ancient people a feeling of connection and placement within the land that they lived in and with the greater cycles of the cosmos. And, um, and so my goal was that then I thought, okay, well, this is, this is what I need to do. This is what it has to be about. It has to be about reconnecting people with nature on a physical, literal level. And it has to, um, find a way since we're gathered when Jennifer and I began, my sister-in-law, Jennifer Aikman, when we began gather, we wanted to recreate these nature holidays, these rituals and, um, and get, and eat, eat wild crafted foods and wild foods because again, they have that special link with nature and with seasonal cycles that we very much lost in our normal, the normal way that we eat. And so that's sort of how all gather that came to be was out of the sense that it was sort of reigniting, as I said, this biophilia, this love of nature mm-hmm. uh, that would be the most effective thing to help, help, the, you know, help what's going yeah. on. Yeah. In so can mind. you, you've, can you, for the listeners who've never heard of gather, can you just give a little description of what that is and how they might participate, even if they don't live in Victoria, because gather has quite a large global community. Now I'd love for you yeah, to just does. explain what it is for folks who don't know. Okay. Well, this is what I was saying. This is the complicated part because we are not one gathers just not one simple thing and I think that accounts for the fact that it that it has become so popular because it's touching a lot of pulse points um for many people today and and so I mean obviously one of the first things that uh, one of the pillars of gathers shall we say is the idea of wild crafting and wild foods and um so that's 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 one, and then the other is the whole idea of ancestral foods, and of course wild foods and weeds in particular. And I'm particularly passionate about weeds for that reason. Is that many of these what we call weeds or wild foods are some of the most ancient foods that we have ever eaten. Uh, um, you know, they go right back to the very beginning, to the Neolithic. We find many of these foods in our cooking pots, and we have been and you know preserved in cooking pots and we've been eating them ever since we've only lost touch with these foods um you know in the last 
40, 50 years. I mean, mm -hmm. my grandmother and other people's parents were still foraging for these foods or these, you know, these medicines or herbal medicines were still part of a daily life. And it's really since, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and the supermarkets, which we just somehow, you know, you go to the store for food, mm -hmm. <laughs> go to the drug mart for drugs, mm -hmm. and we just lost touch with what was um, a part of our ancestral wisdom and our ancestral heritage. I often think, too, that sugar has changed the, particularly the North American palate, so much, so quickly in the past <laughs> few decades that... Uh, many foods wouldn't be to most people's taste anymore because they they would think of them as not being flavorsome enough or sweet enough or even salty enough. It's like something has ratcheted up, up so yeah. much that we need these intense, overpoweringly and very addictive uh, flavors in <laughs> order for people to eat. And I, and I think that's um, a really interesting aspect for me when I think about uh, what you're describing, just how quickly our relationship to food has changed, our 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 taste has changed. I, I went to cooking school in the 90s in France and and some of the foods we were having then, they they were cooking from, you know, cookbooks, you know, this this was at Le Cordon Bleu. So that you know they they, they really uh, emphasize lineage, but it was very noble, you know, royal kind of stuff. But the the flavor palette was so different for me just from a North American to a European perspective, yeah. but also just noticing that the delicacy of flavors relative to North America, oh, okay. it, it's still so. Um, it's becoming more and more evident to me, but I also see how the European palate is shifting. Anyway, sorry to hijack what you're saying. No, but no, I, I just totally agree. We could have a whole conversation about that too. <laughs> I no, and, and, and to hear what you're saying, I, mean, I, I don't think our addiction to sweet things is recent. I mean, um, you know, when you think about the fact that we have for tens of thousands of years been domesticating all of our wild plants and foods to make them starchier and sweeter. Mm. So this has been a long project of humanities, but I don't think, you know, I think we maybe have overachieved that goal <laughs> a little bit now. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, genetic modification and all of those other things. So, <clears throat> you know, we've actually turned... I mean, like I said, there, I think there was also a, always um, some kind of a consciousness altering aspect of food, sugars and carbohydrates, and that we sort of pulled on that thread for a long, long time. Mm. Um, but of course, um, what we did in that process of sweetening and starchifying our foods was removed, you know, the most nutritious aspect <laughs> of them, ironically. Mm -hmm. And, and also... I hear what you were saying earlier a lot about people, you know, they complain, oh, you know, these, I shouldn't say complain, they don't complain. They, they observe that, um, you know, if I give them a, a piece of uh, chickweed to taste or um, garlic mustard or any of these, um, again, these uh, foods that have been part of our traditional um, diets, um, at least in, in terms of the Western world, um, you know, they make a little squishy face and it's like, it doesn't, that, you know, you know, ew, it doesn't taste good. And I always tell them, I said, well, go and eat, go and get a bite of kale, <laughs> take a little piece of that, eat that raw and see how yummy that is. Mm. And in fact, I think in terms of when you compare spinach or kale and then you take like, let's say a little, uh, a, a 
to garlic mustard, or I'm trying to think of some of my other favorite to wild greens. Miner's lettuce, that kind of thing. Oh, miner's lettuce is just so tender and divine. It's better than any store-bought lettuce as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) But um, there is more flavor. There is more flavor in like a piece of, uh, you know, garlic mustard than in a piece of kale. And you get that lovely garlicky bite to it and that sort of mustardy pungency. But again, there is that hint of bitterness very often, at least in like garlic mustard and wild mustards. And I think that is what we really lost touch with is Mm. any bitterness at all in our food. We just can't tolerate that anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course, many herbalists believe that because we have, become disconnected with that bitterness in our food we no longer eat bitters that that is partially responsible for many of the you know the ailment you know our our gut ailments today because bitters are are you know notoriously helpful for for soothing for helping support digestion you know helping the digestive juices get going all those things and so we've wiped this whole aspect out of our diet which used to, you know, which, which has been there for thousands of years, you know, ever since we started eating. Mm-hmm. So we've really, like in the last 40 or 50 years, you know, we've, we've stopped eating that. So that was, again, was part of wanting to reconnect people to these foods through gather mm-hmm. on a physiological level in terms of health. But of course, the wild crafting goes far beyond just health concerns. It's about, again, reconnecting to place to the places around you where you directly live it's about connecting to the weather to the seasonal cycles to observing nature to if you you know in the old days if you 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 had to eat in time you know you had to follow the weather cycles you know after the first frost came the first mushrooms after the first rains in the spring that or you know the 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 nettles would appear Mm -hmm. you had to keep your eyes peeled and you had to be in tune with your environment and um and so that's that whole aspect which i very much consider a spiritual a spiritual aspect of of um wild crafting or or foraging is that it connects you viscerally to the land that you you live and you actually um you take that landscape into your body into yourself and and there's you know that's a sort of that old idea of what i think of you know the original meaning of carnal knowledge when you Mm. become one you have that knowledge of the Mm. landscape and and i think again in that idea of reconnecting um people with nature i think that once they become more connected and i've seen this i've seen this in other people i've even seen this in my own family my other sister-in-law gloria who was as but an urbanite person as you could become in the last few years after watching being around me with gather she's um gone from from thinking these are horrible weeds and just you know <laughs> had nothing to do with them and now she's eating all kinds of natural foods foraging and um she's was a kindergarten teacher and she began bringing this into her classroom teaching her children about cattails and horsetails and dandelions and again that whole cycle of reconnection to to the natural world Mm. and um boy this is a big answer to what gather is all about so that basically is the first two pillars right that sort of wild crafting ancestral food aspect and of course, there's another part that is very important to me, and and as I said, obviously resonates with many of um, Gather's 
followers and enthusiasts, and that is the aspect of, of, of ecofeminism and um, woman's history, and that a lot of the a lot of the, I mean, what I discovered, I mean, I've always been interested in women's spiritual history. I've always been interested in goddess spirituality. But what I really noticed when I first began researching old recipes using wild foods and um, that so many of them went way, way back to, to, a, 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 to a time when, when women were the primary cooks right mm -hmm. and um and so in this so you know it became apparent to me that as i i i, I wrote an article um on our blog on the post called the her story the magical her story of food and originally it was called the magical her story of food gone missing mm. <laughs> because um it really became apparent to me that part of women's spiritual heritage, part of their spiritual history is connected with food, with cooking, and in fact, with food magic. And, and I see food magic as that earliest source of all magic, that sort of sympathetic um, relationship with, if I, if I make this beautiful, um, cake golden and yellow like the sun, it will increase the sun's powers mm. um, it, it, on a very simplistic level um, of that idea of sympathetic magic. And I think that, that that early food magic was sort of the beginning of all magic, although it's never really credited as such, because it's, again, anything to do with food or cooking is is always sort of considered less than important unless you're a five-star chef <laughs> or some temperamental chef, you know, um, male chef or et cetera, et cetera. So there's that sort of division between what we value in terms of what we consider good cooking or good food today and what it all is based upon, which is the fact that it was women who were likely the first gatherers women who were likely the first developers of agriculture. It was women who made the first breads. It was women who made the first cheeses. It was women the first beers. who made wines, beers. Mm -hmm. um, this was all early women's, uh, and it wasn't, uh, and what I write about in the article is that um, this I actually find it appalling that we don't have a single cookbook out there acknowledging the her story of food, looking mm. at the fact of women's early food history. I have searched and searched for it. I cannot find it. And um, I always find these references, like I said, in obscure journals or in, you know, um, archaeological um, writings or, or research. And um, so it, I find it, as I said, so I've, I've, I'm sorry, I've lost my- that, That's okay. Actually, I, I, if I can, I just want to amplify what you've said about right. uh, the origins of, of uh, all of these, you know, common everyday foods that we attribute um, to either just like arriving on scene one day or at least not originating with the mother. Yeah, it's just just happened. And uh, one of the interesting um, eco-feminists that I've uh, 
read, you know, and, and studied, um, much of her work is Charlene Spretnak. And oh, yes, she's been, course. yeah, she's been on the podcast talking about, Oh, has she? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Back in your archives and Chuck, I would love to hear that. Yeah. She was, we were talking about, um, her, uh, one of her first books, the lost goddesses of early Greece, the pre-Hellenic, um, uh, myths. And, and, uh, through that book, I came to realize something about, for instance, Hestia, who kind of becomes oh, known yes. as this, you know, um, hearth keeper, but like the domestic, you know, the good wife. And uh, one of the things that struck me was that when you go back and read the pre-patriarchal Olympian myths, it, it's it's not too many steps to realize that actually Hestia was fire. This is my theory. Absolutely. That it, they were worshiping fire and yes. fire became anthropomorphized. And through that sort of train of thought, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, whenever you think of the sort of discovery of fire, it's always depicted with these, you know, um, ancient uh, men. And I yes. thought, no, That's no, a, wait a second. <laughs> this is been a peeve of mine for years. <laughs> I'm so glad you have noticed and they're mentioning it because I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. And you always hear, I always, you know, hear people talking about, you know, the early shamans were the early keepers of fire. And that was, that's that was, that was. Men that were the earliest keepers of fire. And again, yeah. it's one of their associations with cooking and transforming, you know, the original alchemy of taking raw materials and transforming them into something that was nourishing for both spirit and, and, and body. Mm-hmm. But yes, I absolutely agree. And that's just one example. So you can extend that to the entire, into the entire food world. And, um, and, and, Again, there's so much, um, you know, I sometimes like to watch um, the Gaia TV network. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Mm. Anyways, I spent a lot of time getting upset about it because, <laughs> because again, they're an alternative view, an alternative spiritual view. And yet so many of the talking male talking heads on the various programs they're talking about our religious past, they're always focusing on the Anunnaki gods, on Enel, on Enki, on all these male gods. And very few point out that actually, you know, in ancient Sumeria, which was the very beginning of civilization, apparently, um, that it was the, um, it was Anana, the, mm-hmm. it was the queen of heaven and earth. She was the goddess. She ruled <laughs> over mm-hmm. everything. The male gods were secondary. It was only as, as you know, patriarchy began to get more and more powerful. I mean, the women priestesses were mm-hmm. the, the ones that were in charge of the temples, mm-hmm. not the priests. Mm-hmm. And as patriarchy moved along, of course, this all began to shift. Mm-hmm. And there's some lovely poems and hymns and texts to Anna, all to do with food again, with um, laying out offerings of, you know, um, I can't remember the actual quote. I wish I could uh, share it with you. Um, uh, Laying out offerings of food, of drink. Um, Again, this whole association, that early idea that food was magical, that food was an offering to our goddesses. And this is something, again, that food has become completely desacralized in our culture today. We, mm-hmm. It has no, I mean, maybe around holidays we'll make, you know, some kind of an old dish we vaguely know that has some kind of a spiritual meaning. 
but for the most part, our food, we've, you know, it's um, what was once one of the most spiritual offerings we could give to the goddesses who, which were really the earth goddesses and fire goddesses, these early goddesses of nature. Um, the, again, we've, we've, we've disassociated with that female divine principle. And that this is one of the reasons I think we've disassociated with food. Mm. So, so yeah, I, I've definitely observed the work uh, that you and um, your sister-in-law, your partner, have done with Gather to be very much at this intersection of food, folklore, and activism. Yes, well, you summed it up for me, Carmen. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. You can have that. (laughs) So, 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 I mean, I, I, I want to acknowledge that your intention is coming through. Like, I really get where you're um, going with Gather, but also I get where you're coming from with the mm-hmm. profound sense of um, fury at uh, and, and, and sadness at the disconnection. And I'm really curious, you know, aside from channeling so much of your, your life and your time and your um, cognitive resources in terms of all the research and everything yes. into um, providing this beautiful resource, this wonderful resource that is gathered. Um, I'm very curious, how do you kind of on the daily manage these powerful emotions like grief and rage, especially when you're talking about these large scale cooperative dilemmas that just do not seem to be, you know, moving us to the world we were promised. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't manage it very well. <laughs> I get, I get, I get enraged and grief stricken on a regular basis all the time. You can't, you can't, you know, go to the computer, watch the news, do anything with reading about some latest debasement, you know, the extinction of species, the, uh, I, you know, I don't need to go on the, the fact that, you know, the 80% of the world's wealth still, you know, it goes to, you know, 80% of the world's wealth belongs to the 1%. And they make that by largely not just exploiting human human resources and, and people around the world, but the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as I said, I, I just go back to thinking it has to happen one person at a time, that if there are more people that love this planet, <laughs> there are more people who are passionate about protecting, you know, David Suzuki has a, a quote has said something that you know that it's well established that those have a those that have a good relationship with nature are those that are more apt to protect it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting yeah. though that you bring up Suzuki because whenever I think of him, there was also a a really I don't know if this was in the Guardian I think, but an excellent article about all of the climate scientists and they were sharing how they deal with grief and Suzuki was like I drink scotch. You know, something like that. It was like, yeah, I, you know, so many of them were like, well, you know, my marriage has dissolved or, you know, like it, it was just like, oh, wow. Guess who also is, is with us in this? Like, I, so I, how about I redirect? Because I know that our well, listeners can, are can, with I us. Can, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you finish? But also I want to seed a, 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 another thought that I just had a second ago. 
as yeah. you finish is can can you talk about some of your um, plant allies that you turn to for soothing and comfort for in particular um, sadness and in particular rage so please oh, well, please continue well i i have so many um but i mean i think this is really an important part too as to how how do i begin um my comfort like i said suzuki you're saying his comfort is scotch um my comfort has been the plants and um I, not many know, but about I I don't share this very often. But um, the last ten years of my life has probably been mostly taken up by being a caregiver. My mother was critically ill. I had to become the parents. For, I mean, um, caretakers for my grandparents for a short period of time before they went into assisted living. And my husband has um, multiple sclerosis. Mm. And um, uh, quite severe and he's now confined to a wheelchair and so there's a time there in my life where I was exhausted physically and emotionally and I'm gonna, this is the part where I'm gonna get teary-eyed um, it was going out oh geez it was going out into nature and seeing all the beautiful things that Mother Nature provided for medicine, for food, for healing, that made me truly feel nourished and cared for when the goddess became, the earth became palpable presence for me as a nurturer. And, <clears throat> oh, here I go. My crybaby self takes over. I'm so sorry. No, um, please don't apologize. It's a real honor to <laughs> be here with you in it. It's a real gift. So please don't apologize. Okay, it's really beautiful. So, so this, she became, she became my nurturer, my caregiver. <laughs> here I go again. And so that, is my primary, um, where I take my solace, where I take my strength, where I am renewed by love. Jeez, <laughs> I, I don't love know, it. It's a beautiful. lot of people cry through your podcast. Anyways, so <laughs> that is my underlying. Um, as I said, that is how I how I cope with my sadness with grief, with rage, all those things I take solace in mother nature. And, um, and as I said, to pull out any one particular plant ally, cause I've, I have so, I mean, I've sort of followed that traditional path of so many people who walk the plant path, which is different plants call to you at different times for different reasons. Mm. So I've had relationships with many, every year I seem to have a new relationship with some plant that just calls out to me and I want to eat it, smell it, touch it, and be around it in every way. And obviously there's some knowledge that is being called to me at that appropriate time. Mm. And so, but it is that aspect of reconnecting, of walking that plant path with that plant path that, that um, which is really in so many ways, uh, the priestess path. Um, 
the spiritual women, the holy women of old all worked with, 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 with the plant path. They were all devotees of the goddess. And, and I just love that, um, that this is returning now and the not coincidentally long prophesized time of the goddess's return mm -hmm. that uh, we see this resurgence in so many um, women and men who are, are practicing herbalism, interested in earth medicine, all of these things, which, um, you know, are just an absolutely encouraging, a wonderful thing and gives me hope, mm -hmm. hope for the future. Mm. Well, I, thank you so much for, well, first of all, I want to say thank you for your tears. I think it nourishes the earth and, and I think they, um, well, you know, as Martine Prechtel says, like grief is a form of praise. And so being able to have you cry for us and for the <laughs> listeners who, you know, there are a lot of people who just can't touch it, right, Danielle? Like they just can't because it's too much. And some people carry more than their fair share and that's you. And so thank you for <laughs> doing that work. And, um, and yeah, thank you for letting me be here with you in it. And it feels so nourishing and it's such good food for my heart to mm. have a kindred spirit uh, speak my mind. You yes. know, it's thank really you. beautiful. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And thank you for having me. It's wonderful to speak with a kindred spirit as well. Mm. How beautiful to experience such resonance resonance for sure one of my most favorite experiences of love is when someone I've just met or don't know very well will cry in my presence I just I, I love how it feels when the walls between me and someone else dissolve and my empathy gets watered with their tears like a little seed coming to life with a drink from the well I love the the heart opening feeling of that. I'm so grateful to Danielle for being so real and honest with us. It's just a, a, a really lovely, precious gift for me. As always, I'd like to thank my listeners this time, those in Oregon. I really appreciate you sharing your time with me today. And just so you know, I'm coming to visit you, Ashland, Oregon. The last weekend in May this year, I'll be speaking at a conference called Tending the Threshold website of the same name, Tending the Threshold. If you enjoyed this interview, that weekend is definitely going to be your jam. You should come and hang out with me, Oregon. I don't come south of the border very often. And if you're craving a truly immersive experience of reconnection with Mother Earth, you may want to consider coming on Quest with me in June. We'll devote 12 days to ritual and ceremony among the mountains and the horses and coyotes and wildflowers of the southern Caribou Chilcotin region of BC. You can learn all about Quest and place your deposit on my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.